The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Let's pray real quick, guys, and just invite the Lord uh, to, uh, to speak to us tonight. So, Father, um, God, we turn to you because uh, any wisdom, any truth, any knowledge that we produce on our own is false. God, we need, uh, we need the true, um, eternal, uh, transparent wisdom. Lord, we need uh, the truth that comes directly from you. Lord, we need for you to teach us the scriptures tonight, God, because if it's me teaching, uh, then we'll go astray. We need you, Jesus, to be our true uh, disciple, our true, our true apostle, Father, as you lead us in the word, God. And so I just pray that you would do that tonight, Lord. Help us um, to grasp some of these scriptures, Lord. Um, I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 44. Um, we are going to finish chapter 12. Chapter 12 has been kind of long. I think it's taken us a month to get through it. Um, but super interesting stuff. Um, tonight, is going to be kind of, it's, I have to split it into two different chunks because there's a, there's a chunk that we're going to look at first, um, just to give you guys kind of a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going to go. The first chunk is going to take about 10 or 15 minutes to look at. It's somewhat of like an academically, like, like straining text. So we're really going to have to dig into that, figure out what Jesus is saying. And we'll spend the remainder of our time looking at more of the core, the heart kind of of the text tonight. But um, I do want to start there. I do want to approach this text. I was tempted just to skip over it, but I think it's important. And I think it's important that we, that we understand what, what Jesus is doing there. Um, and it is for a reason. So Mark chapter 12. Now a little bit of background, a little bit of intro. If you guys have been with us for, for a matter of weeks now, you, you know that Jesus has been in the temple um, having discussions with um, different religious leaders, um, specifically the different people with, um, within the Sanhedrin. If you guys remember the Sanhedrin, this, this, this council of 70 uh, plus the high priests, so 71 members, um, these were the, the, the highest religious leaders. These were the people that were in charge of all of the religion in Judaism. They're trying to take down Jesus verbally through a series of discussions. So they've been sending out um, different groups within the Sanhedrin to try to, to try to trap Jesus, to try to get him to say something in which they could get him crucified, murdered, put to death, get the people to, to, to turn away from his ministry. So first the Pharisees came, if you guys remember, and they asked Jesus this question about, about taxation and, and Rome and, and, and whether we should pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus brilliantly, masterfully answered that question. And then we looked at um, Jesus... Uh, Come into contact with the scribes, I'm sorry, with the Sadducees, sort of the religious liberals at that time in Judaism, um, the ones that didn't believe in the resurrection, and we saw Jesus address their question, and last week we saw Jesus come into contact with the scribes, um, and how he had dealt with and attacked their question, and tonight we sort of come to the end of Jesus' discussion with these religious people. And Jesus is like, okay, give me the mic. It's my turn. You guys got to ask me questions. Now I'm going to ask my own question. So the first little chunk of scripture that we're going to dissect, unpack, try to figure out a little bit tonight is Jesus asking his own question to the religious leaders. Um, a very interesting question, but a question that's going to take a little bit of biblical background to understand. So if you guys will follow me there, just pretend that we're hiking up a mountain. I'm not kidding you guys. I spent a ton of time trying to figure out the easiest trail up the mountain um, to, without any sidetracks or side trails. So if you'll follow me up the mountain, I think after 10 or 15 minutes, we'll have a grasp of what Jesus is saying here. And it's extremely interesting. So Mark chapter 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, verse 36, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Okay, so this is confusing, right? (laughs) Some of you guys are like, no, I got this figured out already. I know it. Now, it's confusing. When you read that, you're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're quoting something out of the Old Testament. You're saying, my Lord said unto his Lord, and something about a footstool, and I don't even know. Um, It's confusing. So I want to work through this, and I want to do it in three chunks. I want to look at, firstly, what Jesus is quoting, because he's quoting Old Testament to the scribes. I want to look at the quote. I want to look at the question, what Jesus is asking specifically to these scribes. And then I want to look at the point. What is Jesus trying to say? What is he trying to communicate about himself? So the quote, the question, and the point. Okay, that's hopefully going to get us up this mountain to understand what Jesus is saying about himself here. So the quote, Jesus says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. That's in quotations. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 110. Okay? Now, Psalm 110 was one of the most popular psalms in Judaism and is actually the most quoted psalm in the New Testament that we read today. So it's important. Psalm 110 is an important psalm. It's important to understand that they would have known this psalm, okay? The scribes would have known this psalm. The Sadducees would have known this psalm. The disciples would have known of this psalm. It was extremely important, extremely uh, well known. Now, you notice it says in the quotation, the Lord said to my Lord. You see that in verse 36? Everybody looking at that? The Lord said to my Lord. That's confusing. What is it? There's two Lords there. Now, some of your guys' Bibles may have the first Lord in all caps, now, the reason being is because the Lord said unto my Lord, there's two different words there for Lord. Now, our Bible translates it with one word, Lord, but the original Hebrew has two different words, okay? The first word, so the Lord said unto my Lord, the first Lord is Yahweh, okay? That is the Hebrew name for the utmost, the highest, most holy name for God, okay? That's like, that's like the holiest of names. In fact, the Jews don't even believe that it's, 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 it's right to say the name Yahweh. They have a different way of even pronouncing it, um, but they don't believe that it's holy or right to even pronounce it. So this is like the most revered name for God, okay? Um, for a monotheistic God. Now, the other name, says, so Yahweh says unto my Lord, the second word for Lord is Adonai, Okay, Adonai. This is another name for God, but this is also just a word that can be used to, to describe a lord or a ruler or someone that has been given a position of authority or power. So we have two words for Lord. We have Yahweh and we have Adonai. So when Jesus quotes this psalm, he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, he's saying Yahweh, okay, has said unto Adonai or Lord or Master, Okay. It's important to understand that. The implication is that the first Lord, Yahweh, God is, um, I'm sorry, is God, and the second is a ruler, and that the, 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 the Yahweh has given the power to Adonai, the second Lord, okay? Um, in the psalm, we're not going to go back and read it, but in the psalm, it's all about God, Yahweh, taking over enemies, taking over all those that would come against him, and then giving over that power to this Lord Adonai, that's what the psalm's about. Now, there was two historical translations of this psalm that Jesus is quoting. The first one was during the monarchical period. What that means is when Israel was ruled by one king, okay? When Israel was ruled by one king, they believed that this psalm was talking about that specific king, that God was actually going to give power and, and, and that he was going to conquer all of Israel's enemies and give that power to a physical king, okay, whether it be David or Solomon or whatever. So they would read this psalm at coronations of physical kings. 
Now, later on, after the monarchical period, so after Israel was no longer ruled by one king, um, this psalm was later translated as a messianic psalm. Okay, messianic psalm means that, that, that this was a, about Messiah, that, that Jesus was to come. So this, how, you know, this, this whole, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies, that that was something that was speaking of Jesus. That was coming, well, they didn't think of Jesus at the time, but that was th- speaking of Messiah that was to come. That's the correct translation. This is a messianic psalm. Jesus confirms that. Okay, so that's the quote. The question that Jesus asks, he says, how can the scribes, Say that the Christ is the son of David. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, Matthew's account has a parallel of this. The question that Jesus asks in Matthew's account is, who is Messiah? Whose son is he going to be? Okay? So that's a little bit helpful. This is similar to the question that Jesus asked Peter in Caesarea Philippi, remember, when he said, he said, who who do people say that I am? And then he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Remember Peter's response, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, so Jesus is asking a similar question to the scribes. He says, who is Messiah? Whose son is Messiah? Now their answer is the son of David. Okay, and both, in all of the synoptic accounts of this, when Jesus asks this question, the answer is the son of David. Now, Now follow me on this. When I say Christ, who do you think of? Jesus, right? In, in, in that time, in Judaism, in Israel, when you said son of David, you thought Messiah. You thought Messiah. It was, it was synonymous. People knew in Israel, in Judaism, that if, if son of David was mentioned, that was a messianic reference, that that meant the Messiah that was supposed to come and was supposed to, to rule and reign in Israel. So the response of the scribes is, well, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Okay, we know that because in, in the Davidic covenant, God said that Messiah would come through David's line, that, that, that kingly line, that Messiah would come through that. You guys remember in Matthew 9, the two, two blind men cried out to Jesus and they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. Okay, or even, even the Gentile woman who said, um, her, her cried out for Jesus to heal her daughter. Remember that? She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. So, so even her, she's like, she understands that son of David is, is messianic, that that points to um, the Messiah, the future Messiah that was to come. Now David was revered as the greatest king. You guys know that? He was revered as the greatest king that Israel had known. And the idea that Israel had of what Messiah was going to look like was David. They thought when Messiah comes back, it's going to be a Davidic-style guy. He's going to be physically strong. He's going to reunite the kingdom. We're going to rule in power. We're going to be an awesome place again. And the Messiah is going to be like David. So also, David's writing the psalm. David is writing the psalm. So David, as he's penning the psalm, says, The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now, here's what Jesus does. Jesus is saying, how is it possible for David, who is the great patriarchal king, how is it possible for David to call Messiah his Lord? When the Messiah is supposed to be his great, 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 great grandson. Now, understand this. In Middle Eastern culture, it's an honor-shame society. That means that you don't pay respects to your son. Your son respects you. Okay, you always respect your elders. So your father is greater than you. That's just the way it works in that society. So Jesus is saying, how does David call Messiah? How does David call Messiah Lord when, when you're saying that Messiah is supposed to be his great, 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 great grandson? Are you just following this? I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Jesus is pulling up this, this idea 
Um, you guys think that the Messiah is going to be firstly a man and a king like David, and you think he's going to come through the, the, the loins of David and through the line of David, which is true. But how is, how is David calling him Lord before he was even born? It doesn't make any sense. The reality is, listen, David had a bigger idea of who Messiah was than first century Israel did. First century Israel thought of Messiah as just this, this physical man that was going to come in and, and make Israel an awesome nation. The biblical and true identity of Messiah was that God himself would come into Israel that would redeem his people, pay for their sins, set up an eternal kingdom. The idea of what Messiah was actually there to do was far greater than what first century Israel thought that Messiah was going to do. And Jesus is challenging this. He's not saying, he's not saying that Messiah isn't going to come through the line of David. What he's saying is that you guys are thinking too small. You're thinking of Messiah as just this earthly man who's going to come through and be similar to David, but maybe better than David. But that's not the point. God is something completely bigger and greater than that. So the question he's asking is, how can he possibly be David's great-great-grandson? David wouldn't be calling him master. He wouldn't be calling him Adonai. He wouldn't be calling him Lord. And David says, Lord. David revered Messiah before Messiah was even born. Why? Well, here's the point, Okay. The point that Jesus is making is that the idea that they have is too small, firstly, but also that Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater David. They thought of David as the greatest king, but Jesus was to be the greater king. Now listen, David, David could not, he could not establish a kingdom that would last because it wasn't very many years before the kingdom was split again and there was multiple rulers. David couldn't establish a lasting kingdom. Jesus has established an eternal kingdom, right? David couldn't even keep his own son from rebelling against him. Remember that Absalom chose to, chose to take a bunch of men and try to rebel against, against David, broke his heart. David couldn't even keep control over his own house, let alone rule a kingdom, yet Jesus rules his kingdom with absolute power and absolute sovereignty. Jesus is the greater David. David's rule was filled with sin, with Bathsheba, and all of this stuff that he did in his life. Even as a, even as a godly man, he's even a God-fearing man, he failed. He fell short. Jesus lived a perfect and holy life. Jesus is the greater David. David couldn't take away the sin of the world. He couldn't restore God's people to God the Father. He couldn't conquer death, could he? He's in the grave. David is in the grave. He's in heaven probably, but he's, he's in the grave. He couldn't build the temple. Remember that? God said, David, you can't build the temple because your hands have too much blood on them. You've had too much war. You've seen too much death. You've done too much sin to build my temple. But what did Jesus come to do? To build an eternal temple. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing to the fact that you guys are looking to Messiah, for Messiah to be another David. Do we need another David? No. We need Jesus the greater David. We don't need another physical man to screw everything up, to split the kingdom, to mess up his household, to sin and adultery, and to lead us astray. We need God in human flesh to lead us as people, right? That's what we need. Jesus is also saying that Messiah is eternal, that he was before David. That's why, that's why, that's why David can say that. And lastly, he's saying that God has given Jesus all authority and power. In that psalm, it says, sit at my right hand. This is what God the Father does with Jesus, isn't he? He has given him all power. Listen to this. Colossians 1:17. And in him, Jesus, all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. God has given all power and preeminence to Jesus. Amen? Every stand up. Please? <laughs> Everyone's like, no. <laughs> okay. So now we got that out of the way. You guys can sit back down. It's interesting. Please go home and study it on your own. I'm not kidding you. I spent 15 hours trying to figure that out for myself, let alone communicate it to you. So please go home and study it on your own. It's really intriguing. It's really interesting. Um, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. So then, Mark chapter 12. Jesus is people watching in the temple. You guys ever people watch? Have you ever done that before? I love people watching. I love people watching specifically in situations where everyone's doing the same thing. We're all at the DMV. You're all at jury duty. Uh, you're all, whatever, places that everyone's stuck there and just seeing different people's reactions. Oh, this is lame. Oh, I love this. This is fun. Different reactions to different things. Jesus is people watcher. I think it's funny. And he shares some of his people watching observations with us, specifically with two different groups of people. The first people that he observed are the scribes. He's watching the scribes. He's seeing how they they go around in different places. He's seeing how they worship. He's seeing how they talk. He's seeing what they do. Um, And then the second people group that he he, he describes and observes is a very poor, a very unpowerful, unimportant widow. Okay, he observes these two different people and then he shares them with them. So we're gonna look at those, okay? Firstly, he looks at the scribes. Mark chapter 12, 38, and just right where we left off. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So, Jesus is painting this picture based on what he's seeing. He's looking around and he's seeing the scribes. He's seeing how they're living, how they're acting, how, how they're outwardly showing who they want to be and what they want to be, be held as, right? First thing he notices, first thing he says is that they walk around in long robes. Anybody walk around in long robes in here, in bathrobes? No? Okay. Um, they walk around in long robes, and you're probably thinking that has nothing to do with me. This doesn't apply to me. Uh, I don't wear long robes. Um, it totally applies to you. And even more specifically, everything in this applies to me. Because I'm in pastoral ministry. So when you read verses like this, you, <laughs> it's kind of scary. It's kind of it's a reality check. I have to check my own sin, my own pride, and my own heart. So they go about in these prayer robes. Now what these prayer robes that they wore were, they weren't just bath robes. They weren't just garments. They, they were actually these... Um, robes that went over and had tassels on the bottom of them. The Numbers, the book of Numbers talks about how um, you, you could wear these prayer uh, robes to signify um, that you were doing things for the Lord in the synagogue, different things like that. Well, they took this to an extreme. They started making them bigger and longer and more flamboyant to the point where they probably made them five times the size of what they were originally meant to be. And not only that, but they didn't only wear them in the synagogue when they w- should have worn them, they wore them out of the synagogue in the markets, where they're shopping, when they're hanging out, when they're doing their stuff. Why? Well, because they think people are going to think they're holy when they see them wearing them, right? So, hey, I'm wearing my prayer shawl. Check me out. Everybody can see how holy I am. Everyone can see that I'm wearing, which, 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 would, which would tell people specifically a few things. It would tell them that they were powerful, tell them that they were pure, that they were holy, that they had wisdom, that they had money, that they had eminence, that they were to be looked up to, that they were to be revered, Right? They wore these robes so people would respect them, think that they were something important. 
Now, is this anything new, <laughs> first of all? I, first thing, I, when I got off the plane in Israel, the first, first guy I saw um, was, this, was this dude with a beard. It was braided, and he had this big, long, black cape thing on. Kind of looked like when you get your hair cut, you know? But it was, he was for real about it. And he had this little funny hat and this giant bling that he stole from Snoop Dogg. Um, like this giant bling that was hanging around his neck. And I just felt like I should say reverend or something. I mean, he just was like so holy looking, you know? Um, so people are still, I mean, like within different denominations and different churches, people are still, they're, they're, they want these, some of these reverends, they want to be, look, they want to look like they're really spiritual, they want to look like they're really righteous and holy, so they wear these big robes with, with big chains or whatever it is. But even a little more close to home, have you guys ever thought about how much thought we put into the way we look? Have you ever thought about that? How much time we think about what pe- the way people perceive us? Some of us really want to look wealthy, even though we're not. So we charge our credit cards up. We get a house we can't afford. We buy a house, or we buy a car, or lease a car that we shouldn't buy because we want to appear wealthy. We want to look like something. Some of us don't want to look wealthy. Some of us want to look um, unwealthy. And you might think that's weird, but in Wairika, that's the style, to look unwealthy. I don't know why. People just love it. Um, some people want to look like they really care about their appearance. Like they want everyone to know. Like they put lots of makeup on. They make sure they're tan. They make sure they're going to the gym. They really want people to know that they care about what they look like. Some people want people to think that they don't care, right? Like I don't want anyone to think that I care about how I look, so I'm not going to get ready because someone might think I'm materialistic and whatever. Um, this is the confusing one. Some people want people to think they don't care, but they really care, <laughs> right? So, so I'll just put enough makeup on to where no one thinks that I care about my appearance, but the reality is I really do care about how I'm perceived. Um, some people really want to look like they have it all together, right? They really want to look like they have it all together. I think it's funny, you know, you go to the car dealership and you decide what car you want to buy, and you don't want to get a car that's too nice because then my, people might think that, you know, you're, you're just, you're being irresponsible or something. You don't want to get a car that's too weird, because then people might think you're weird. You don't want to get a car that looks junky. You want to get a car that, that makes you look like you're at least doing well in life. That people think that you're, you know, that you, you can afford a nice car. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we think about. They're the kinds of things that we do. We care about how people perceive us. And you might be sitting there saying, no, I don't. I guarantee you do. We all do. The way we cut our hair, the clothes that we pick out, the shoes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the schools we put our kids in, the people that we hang out with, associate ourselves with, the pictures we put on Facebook. We care about how people perceive us. And what Jesus is observing about these religious leaders, these scribes, is that they are caring that people perceive them in a specific way, and that is that they are pious and religious. Jesus says they want to be observed as someone that is very, very religious. Second thing he says, they like greetings in the marketplace. They love the feeling of being greeted with reverence. Now, um, scribes in that time, they wanted to be referred to as rabbi. So if you saw them in the, in the, in the market or in the street, you would say rabbi, and you would greet them with that honor. Um, or they would like to be called, actually, interestingly enough, father, which is kind of like the Catholics, right? Father. Um, I was joking, where's Pat? I was joking around with Pat tonight. He, he came in and said, pastor, and I said, it's reverend. Or you could call me father. Yeah, that was funny. Um, anyways, so they, they wanted to be called that. So it was kind of like this pride thing. Like when, when you get greeted in, in the streets, you know, you want people to, to call you by what, whatever it is that you think that you are. So that could be like doctor, right? Uh, I want to be called doc. Please call me doctor. Um, please call me pastor. Please call me wh- whatever, whatever it happens to be. Um, but the reality of this is that, that we care about what people think of us. We care about our outward. Now, I remember when I worked... Um, 
out in Applegate. And uh, there was kind of this stigma there um, that, that like, now most of the world, probably 99% of the world, it's not cool to be a pastor. But there, it was kind of cool to be a pastor. And so I was like, sweet. And I got on staff and I was like, I'm a big deal now. Everyone's going to think I'm cool. And um, I remember like just meeting all these people in the amphitheater and leading worship and stuff. And then I'd go to the mall and someone would know me. And I was like, oh, this just strokes my pride. I feel like I'm so cool because people know who I am. I mean, this was me right here. This, I shouldn't say was, this is me. I love it when I know people when I go out because it makes me feel important. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel like I have some kind of like, like intrinsic worth. It makes me matter, right? And Jesus says they have the best seats in the synagogue. When the synagogues, they would sit sides on the sides of the synagogue, and then on the front of the synagogue would be the rulers and the people that were of importance, the religious, pious people, the people that could speak in the synagogue, and people would listen. So they like to sit there because they like to put themselves above others, where people want to come and listen to them. Um, I, had, I had a pastor friend that, that pastored for like 13 years, and then just some crazy stuff went down, and he, was, he, he had to just leave. He just had to be done, and he started a fruit stand. Um, loved the guy. I was able to work with him, um, and we had a lot of good conversations and things, but it was so funny because he, he told me some of, some of his struggles as, as someone that had been in ministry for so long, and he said, it's so hard for me because people used to come into my office and sit and want to hear me talk to them and give them wisdom and ask me questions, and nobody, nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares what I have to say. I'm just the fruit guy. <laughs> and that was a struggle for him. And he was really open and honest about it. And I, and I appreciated that. But it was a struggle for him because like, I, used to, I used to be someone that people cared about. People used to want to know what I had to say. And now I'm just this fruit guy and nobody cares. You know, and like we hate that. We love it when people think that we are worth listening to, don't we? This is extremely hard for me because I get to get up and preach. And, it, and there's a temptation to think that maybe I have something to say that you guys care about. When in reality, that's not true. It's the gospel, right? You guys are here for the gospel, not for me. The, but this is, this, is a, this is a temptation for all of us to think that maybe, maybe we're important. Maybe people want to hear what we have to say. The scribes were all about that. It says that they have places of honor at feasts. Places of honor at feasts was to say that if you sat to the right or to the left of whoever was, whoever was, was uh, putting on that feast or that banquet, whoever sat on the right or the left was the most important people there. Those were like their best friends. The most honored person there sat there. You guys ever been in a wedding party before? That table set up in the front. I remember I was in a wedding a, a year or so ago, and, uh, and I, was in the, I was in the wedding party, and I got to sit next to the groom. I was like the closest one to him, and I was like, oh, yeah, we're besties. You know what I mean? You're like looking over at everybody. And it's just, just pride, you know, funny things like that. But they love, they love going to banquets and be like, oh, this scribe, come and sit in the chief seats because you're the most important because, you know, you, you're worth things. You're, you, you. Come and sit in these chief seats. Um, it's kind of like name dropping. You guys ever name drop? Isn't that funny? Talk to someone and you're like trying to figure, you're trying to figure out people you mutually know, but you're trying to steer towards people that you know that are important, you know? It's like they, I talk to somebody and they go to another church. And I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know your pastor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's whoever else is important, I know them. You know, it's like, it's a stupid pride thing that we do, but it's just all the same stuff. It says they devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. Now, what does that mean that they devour widows' houses? How do they, how do they devour widows' houses? Remember that these guys are not only religious leaders. These guys are lawyers. Remember I talked about that a few weeks ago? That the scribes were literally masters of the law. So if you needed someone to write up a, a contract or, or to, to make sure that, you know, your, your estate was secure, you would come and you would actually bring a scribe in to write that stuff out and to do the legal, judicial work for you. So, these scribes are somehow taking advantage of these widows by 
the law. They were masters of the law. They were finding loopholes. They were doing things in order to rip off the poorest people in society, which are widows. This was horrible. Now, scribes weren't allowed to take an income from, uh, from the ministry, from the temple, whatever. They had to get an income from, uh, from outside of that. So that's why Paul was a tent maker, because he was a Pharisee. Remember that? That's where he got that thinking. Even though he said, I'm justified to take an income, I'm not going to. So, so what they would do is they would, instead of just relying on people's charity, they would go out and actually rip people off, specifically the weakest of the society, which would be widows, and they're ripping them off. Kind of like the Catholic Church did back in the day. Remember when they talked about penance? Have you ever heard about that? They said, oh, come and pay money for your dead relatives, and it'll send them to heaven. They're ripping people off with a false gospel, kind of like people do on TV today, Right? Ripping people off. People that are, that are looking to earn somehow God's favor with their pocketbook. Little old ladies sitting in their room that, that have no one around and feel lonely. And they see a guy on TV saying that they'll be blessed with health if they write a check. So they send in a check to that guy. Ripping him off. It's the same thing that's been happening over and over again. And I love, guys, how perceptive Jesus is. He's perceptive. He sees these guys out here, and they look so holy, and they see, I mean, he sees the mega church guy. He sees the guy on TV, the guy that everybody thinks, you know, oh, man, that guy's just so awesome. That guy's so holy, and Jesus is like, no. I see right through that. I see right through that. In the New Testament, he says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. That means that you look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. You have the stench of death coming from inside of you. He says you're like a cup that's the clean on the outside, but the inside is filthy. Jesus is so perceptive. He sees right through this fake and false religious front, and he sees to who they really are. And they only care about themselves. They're ripping people off, and they're putting out this image of being super religious. Now let's look at the contrasting story. So Jesus describes the scribes. He describes the scribes. And then Jesus goes on to talk about this widow. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So Jesus is sitting here, people watching. And he, and he sees lots of people coming up into the court of Gentiles where the, where the, um, where the offering would have been. There would have been 13 of these like trumpet-looking horns that would have been there. People could come in and just put their coins, put their money into these, these trumpet-looking receptacles or whatever. And so he's watching this. He sees people coming and putting tons of money in, some people putting lots out of their abundance, some rich people. And then he sees this widow come up that nobody would have noticed. Everyone would have just been like, oh, she's not going to put anything worth anything in there. So. But Jesus watches. He sees her. He notices her. She comes up, and he, she gives her two, her two mites. Now, understand really quickly, too, just this is important. Widows, guys, widows were the lowest on the socioeconomic scale. They were nothing in that culture for a few reasons. First of all, because in that type of culture, the man was the one that provided. The jobs were for men. So if you lost your husband, you didn't have means by which to provide for yourself. Also, your social identity was linked to your husband. So you're thought of as great or not great based on who you're married to. So if your husband dies, you lose that. It's sort of implied seemingly that she has no children, which means she has no one to take care of her. Okay, so this woman is poor. She has nothing. Now, let me explain what two mites is, okay? Two mites, one, okay, one mite is one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Okay, got that? One sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius is one day's work, okay? So she's got two of those. It's equivalent to a penny, it says. It's, 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 like, it's like nothing. 
She has absolutely nothing. She has enough for maybe a scrap of bread to get her through the next couple of days. So this isn't just a matter of, oh, here's some money. How much change do I have in my pocket? Oh, yeah, here's my goodwill bag, you know? No, this is like, this is everything she has. This is like you dipping into all of your savings, all of your credit cards, selling your house, selling your car, and setting it right there. This is what she does. She has everything that she has, okay? Verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now I want to make three gospel points in conclusion. I want to make three gospel points about these two observations that Jesus makes. That of the scribes and that of this widow. The first one is this. So if you're taking notes. The gospel and human power never coexist. The gospel and human power never coexist. So let me tell you really quick what this story about this widow is not saying. Okay, I had a page of notes, probably a little more than a page of notes today that I threw in the garbage because I thought for sure that this text was telling us that we need to go and give everything we have to Jesus. Okay, now everything we have is Jesus's, right? Belongs to him. Okay, so if he asks us to give it all like he did the rich young ruler, that's totally fine. And and there's a good principle to be had there. But that's not what this is saying. It's not what this is saying. This isn't saying go sell everything you have. In fact, Jesus isn't even saying, okay, guys, look, she just gave two mites. That's a great idea. How much you got, Peter? Three bucks? Okay, throw that in. Uh, James, what do you got? Four dollars? Okay, great. Yeah, oh, you got a goat? Let's throw the goat in. Okay. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not saying, guys, look, a good principle. Don't be like the scribes. Be like the widow. The widow is not the hero of the story. Now, she's always preached that way <laughs> in commentaries and in sermons, and, that, and that's a good application, and that's biblically right and biblically true in a lot of ways, but this woman is not the hero of this story. She's the victim. Jesus just got done illustrating this corrupt and fallen and satanic system of religion in which men have got so corrupt that they will take advantage of a woman that can barely buy a scrap of bread and tell her to put those two mites into that receptacle so that she might have life. This is the lie that she's believed. She has been fed a lie from a false religious system, a false gospel that tells her you need to buy your salvation. You need to buy God's love for you. And in order to do that, you need to give whatever you had. And she says, okay, well, I only have this. So she gives it. I don't think this is an illustration of, wow, we need to be more like this woman. I think this is an illustration of this woman is a victim. And Jesus is painting a picture of the victim that has been created because of this religious system. These scribes are so bad. They're false. They're they're so false. Jesus says that they're going to have a greater judgment. He says, beware of the gospel they preach. Beware of them. Because look at what happens when you believe a, a system like that. You have a woman coming in willing to go home and die. To go home and die because she thinks she has to pay for her salvation. Because she thinks she has to pay for her love. For God's love. I think, guys, I think this is an illustration of Jesus saying this is what happens when the false gospel is preached. And what is the false gospel? A false gospel is that you have to pay, that you have to do, that you have to act to be saved. Is that true? No. 
The gospel is this, that he first loved us and that because he loved us, that we can love him, right? Now, the gospel and human power can never coexist. Why? Historically, because every time that the gospel falls into the hands of the powers that be, they change it. Jeff was talking about this on Sunday. In the third century, when when Christianity became the Roman religion, it declined because they changed the gospel. It was no longer the gospel that God came into this world to save the broken hearted, to give them free salvation that he purchased on the cross. They've they've changed it into a man-made religion. That's what happened. And that's happened over and over and over again. That's why we had the great, I'm sorry, that's why we had the, 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 the Reformation that Martin Luther brought in because the Catholic Church was going off the rocker with stuff, talking about how we have to pay to get our relatives into heaven. It's false theology. It's false gospel. And Jesus is saying, look at this woman. She is completely confused because of bad shepherds, because of wolves that have led her astray to tell her that she has to buy God's love. It's completely wrong. It's completely false. And whenever power and and Christianity get in bed together, it becomes something else. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's why we don't need a pope, okay? I'm sorry. That's why we don't need a pope. That's That's why Israel didn't need a king. God wanted to lead them, okay? We need Jesus, he is the leader of the church. Anytime a man is put in position of leadership over the entirety of the church, they will fall. A pastor close to our home with a church of close to 20,000 people had to resign because he fell into pride. Now that breaks my heart, but the reality is that he's not our apostle. Jesus is. He's not the leader of the church. Jesus is. The Pope isn't the leader. Peter wasn't the leader. Paul wasn't the leader. Jesus is the greatest apostle. Jesus' message was to bind the brokenhearted, to come into a poor place where people are hurting, where people need the love of God, and to penetrate that need with a greater treasure, and that's God himself. What happened to our country? (laughs) Power and Christianity became one, and it declined because it went from being the gospel to being a moralistic ideal to being let's just change the behavior that's not the gospel that's never was never meant to be the gospel that's what it's been made into in our country why is christianity thriving in poor places with persecution where people are killed for being christians where people have nothing because that's where the gospel was meant to thrive why because people realize they need something other than themselves the scribes they don't get it they think they have what they need we're powerful we're holy we're righteous we don't need a savior Who needs a savior? This woman who has been lied to and is giving everything she has to buy God's love. She needs a savior, right? I mean, can you imagine Jesus sitting there and his heart breaking as he sees this woman buying into this falsehood? That is not the gospel. Second observation, guys, and this might might sound weird, but go with me on this. I don't think that the widow, as commonly as it's taught, I don't think the widow is, is to represent what we should be. I think the widow represents Christ. Let me ask you something. Have you guys given everything that you have to the Lord? No. Will you guys at some point give? I mean, maybe, but I doubt it. To, to set this woman up as on a pedestal and say, this is who we need to be, guys. We need to, we need to give our two mites, give our everything, and go home and sell it. I'll go to, go to Africa, go to China. 
God may call you to that, but that's putting a yoke of bondage on you guys. That's to say, you guys need to be like this woman. Look, she gave everything. <laughs> that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, go do so that God loves you. It's not the gospel. The, the Jesus is like this widow because Jesus gave up his power and his authority and, and, and all of his eternal riches and stepped out of the Trinity in heaven and came into earth and wore a man's smelly and tired body and became a, became a man and became nothing and as Isaiah said, became weak and comely that no one would care about him. Philippians 2 says, But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and he gave it all like the widow. So that the widow wouldn't have to. He gave it all on the cross so the widow doesn't have to buy her salvation. So she can go home and have a a slice of bread and live two more days. He gave it all on the cross. He poured it all out. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. Death has left the crimson stain. He's washed as white as snow. He's given it all, guys. He's done it all for us. He is the widow in this. It's not a yoke of bondage saying, guys, let's go out and, 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 and do more and be more and earn more. It's no, let's look at the grace of Jesus. And because of that, my third point, the gospel causes us to want to throw our mites in. You understand that? Now, what this woman did was beautiful. Okay, you get that? What this woman did was beautiful. She went up and she, she wanted God's favor so bad that she gave her two mites for God's favor. But how much greater is it to rather than thinking you have to go and give, that you go up and say, I don't care about my two mites because I found something greater. Because Jesus has become my treasure. Because Jesus is greater than my things. Does God want us to go home and say, yeah, I need to get rid of all my stuff because that's what Sam said to do tonight? Or does God want us to go home and say, I don't care about my stuff because God is greater than my stuff? How much greater would it be if the gospel had led this woman to a point where she'd say, I'm gonna throw my two mites in because Jesus is greater. He's more valuable. He's worth so much more. And to show that complete trust in God by doing that. Giving should not be a religious act. It should be worship. When that plate goes by on Sunday morning, you don't say, if I don't give, God might not love me. Someone might think that I'm not Christian enough. Someone might see that I'm not giving. You say, Lord, I don't care about my money. I don't care about my money. Listen to this. And and I've said this before, but this is the best picture of the gospel in the Bible, in my opinion. We listen to this. In Matthew 13, it says, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. He says, I'm going to describe the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to paint a picture for you and and, and want want to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure in a field. Something valuable in a field. And this time, people would bury their whole life savings in the backyard because they didn't have banks. They go off to war. They get killed in a war or whatever. Now their stuff's just there. It's just in a field. Nobody knows it's there. They could bury their whole entire life savings. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found. Now picture this guy, okay? He lives in a mud hut. He's got one plow, two donkeys, and a family. He's got nothing. He's out plowing a field one day. Clunk. He gets on his knees, he, he digs it up, opens the box, and it's a treasure that is worth a hundred times what he would have made in his entire lifetime. Now, what is this guy going to do? What's he going to do? He puts, it back in the, he puts it back in the hole. His heart's pounding. He runs home and he tells his wife, 
Babe, sell everything we have. Put it all on Craigslist. We're getting out of here. It's all going. What are you talking I mean, the neighbors are like, you're insane. His father-in-law calls us and says, what are you doing? Um, his dad calls, you're an idiot. What are you selling your mud hut for? It's all you have. You worked your whole life for this mud hut. He's like, I don't care. I don't care because I have something greater and you guys don't even know about it. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> don't even worry about it. I got something so much better than my stupid mud hut and donkey and plow and that stuff's going down. I don't care. Sell it. Get rid of it because I found something. And he sells it and he buys the whole field so that legally he can have this treasure and he digs it up and he, do you think he cares about his mud hut? Think he cares? No. He doesn't care. Guys, that's the beauty of the gospel. Not that I have two mites, I have to give it to God so he loves me. But no, I have two mites, and you know what? God is so much better, so much much greater than everything that I have that I don't care about it. Because I found a treasure that's more valuable than that, infinitely more valuable than that. My desire is that I want to give like this woman too but I don't want it to be because I'm trying to earn God's love. I want it to be because I'm smitten by God's love, because I'm blown away by God's grace that he would be like this woman and get everything from me on the cross, pour it all out for me. That's how I want to live. I want to throw away my two measly mites, whatever that is, into God's kingdom because they don't hold any value to me anymore. That's what the gospel transformation should do to our hearts. We just think about that tonight. We think about that tonight and say, Lord, what is it? What is it? What is it that you want? And, and, and may it not be a religious work. May it be worship. There's a difference. I don't want to do things because I think I have to earn God's love. Because I want to feel good about myself. I want to do them because I can't help but respond to the goodness of God. Amen? Let's all stand real quick and pray. Father, you're greater than everything we've ever known. You're greater than our spouse. You're greater than our kids. Greater than our homes, our life, our church, our country. Father, Father, you're greater than any joy we've ever, ever, ever experienced. In fact, any joy we've ever experienced, God, is just an echo of something that you've made anyways, God. So Lord, I pray tonight, God, that you would release yokes of bondage on people's shoulders that they don't even know we're there. That like this widow, God, they believe that they have to earn your love. When simply, God, you just want them to be smitten by it. So Father, I pray you would take that yoke off of their shoulders tonight, God, and you would replace it with yours. For those that feel tired from bearing that yoke of religion, from trying to look like they have it all together, from trying to look like they're spiritual, God, I pray they would let that down. They would let you in. They would let each other in. Father, show us what it is to live lives out of worship rather than lives out of guilt. Show us what it looks like, Lord, to give to you liberally, not because we think we have to, but because we get to, we want to because you are a greater treasure. I pray you would bury that deep in our hearts and that, Father, it would shape everything we do, every action we take, Lord. So I love you and uh, I love these guys. I thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.